we mustn't dwell. No, not today. We can't. Not on Rex Manning Day. It's 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 Rex Manning Day, baby. Welcome back to another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. I appreciate you all bearing with me while we've been on hiatus. Life gets thrown at you in unusual ways, but I am back and it is better than ever because it's Rex Manning Day. <laughs> and I have one of my favorite people in the world here with me to talk about one of my favorite movies, Empire Records, Ashley Griffin. Ashley, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's always such a joy and a delight to get to be on your show. So anytime you want me, I am here. Thank it's you. I mean, honestly, it's like I've said before, most of my podcasts are just reasons to hang out with my friends who live on the other side of the country than I do now. Amazing. Um, so for anybody who might not have caught your uh, episode on Dull Whip and Dreams. Why don't you tell them just a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I'm a Broadway performer and writer. Um, I also direct and I have um, my own podcast and do editorials for the online net uh, onstage network, excuse me. Um, my website is ashleygriffinofficial.com if anybody would like to come check me out. But I have come to be known as something of an expert in theater, theater history, um, fairy tales. Um, I've been called the Hermione, the theatrical Hermione Granger. Um, so I have a lot of experience in a lot of different areas, um, but I really love deep dive discussions like this. And I love talking to you, Maddie Ryan. So, so uh, that all checks out. Uh, all of that is very <laughs> true. Uh, and honestly, so this is actually a movie that I think is a little more nostalgia for me than you, because you mm -hmm. watched it the first time because I suggested you watch this. Movie. I did when we met on Wicked, um, mm -hmm. you said that you thought this would make a wonderful musical and I had never seen it because um, it's a little before my generation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I went out and got and saw it and loved it and then rewatched it recently in anticipation of doing this with you today. So yeah, thank you for introducing me to of this course. film. I still hold that this would make a wonderful movie musical. It or would. Musical. You know, and that it was would. back when like the only movie musicals that we had in Legally Blonde was still like had just closed, was still playing. You know, we'd had a couple others, but this was before the like Mean Girls boom that we are currently seeing of all yeah. of the stuff on Broadway's movies. Um, and I still hold watching this that that it would still make a great musical. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what are some things for you that really stand out about this story that you really just think are really effective of again because it's a little bit before my time too um yeah. like you know i was in elementary school when this came out and so i probably saw it when i was about 20 for the first time and it kind of heavily coded me for a while which is you know everybody's probably rolling their eyes at home but kind of the interactions and i'd not seen a movie like this before because mm -hmm. that was when i was starting to explore cinema and kind of everything you know calling any films cinema um <laughs> you know but what are what are some things for you that just still stand out upon rewatch for this film well it was really interesting you know coming back to it mm -hmm. and and i also again was never exposed to it until i was like a fully formed adult mm -hmm. um it's interesting to me because it feels like 
a cinematic link between the um the john hughes movies of the 80s and like the ferris bueller's day offs and whatnot mm -hmm. um trying to sort of bridge like it's the bridge between that and then the kinds of movies that we would see starting to come out in like the 2000s mm -hmm. like this the the main character in this reminds me of an emo ferris bueller oh yeah and everything about it um reminds me of the breakfast club but mm -hmm. in a 90s setting instead of an 80s setting which i think you know in terms of nostalgia and whatnot i think the 90s is really tricky because i always i always wonder you know whatever you know decade i'm in like you know how will history sort of look back on it and mm -hmm. you know like the 50s 60s 70s 80s i feel like have such defined personalities mm -hmm. and the 80s you know there was grunge and there was tlc and i don't feel like it has this really defined character like if you mm -hmm. were going to do go as a 90s person for halloween i'm not really sure what you would do maybe a clueless kind of a mm -hmm. thing but then once you start getting into like britney in the 2000s that kind of has a definable thing so i feel like this is a bit of like a, a movie of a lost era mm -hmm. in in a way that i i haven't seen movies talk about that time period and it seems to be this sort of bridge um i also at one point when the um rex manning's assistant came in mm -hmm. when she first entered i thought it was molly ringwald and i thought that that was like the most brilliant casting twist ever it wasn't but it's that kind of a thing it feels like it's bringing all those wonderful 80s high school mm -hmm. type movies up into the 90s and beyond well it is interesting that you say that so just jumping to debbie mazar who plays jane who is rex manning's mm -hmm. assistant it is interesting because debbie mazar has been in films for four decades now and she has mm -hmm. always showed up and she plays these interesting characters i mean she's um she's traversed television she's traversed film she's done theater and it's one of those things that she keeps coming back because she plays a very specific type yeah. so well i believe she was in the sopranos i mean she's in younger currently with sutton foster mm -hmm. um you know it's one of those things that when i saw that i went oh i can't think of anything more 90s than a cameo by debbie mazer <laughs> you know, the only thing maybe would have been uh uh a marissa tomei uh, yeah. because you know that was when she was you know, but it would have made sense also to have Molly Ringwald because it's that thing. But bring up Ferris Bueller because the beginning of this movie, this kind of first six and a half minutes, feel like John Hughes movie, just with the grittier lens. Like it's darker. Mm -hmm. It's it's and it's interesting that we meet Gina because um, we're only meeting yes. Gina right in the very beginning. Um, and uh, it is this interesting moment where Lucas, while not acknowledging that the audience is there he completely breaks the fourth wall mm -hmm. and brings us into this moment where we don't know much about him other than that he's being allowed to close and he's completely reckless those are the two things we know which are very you know and he looks a little bit like an like a more realistic matthew broderick because i think something that happened in the transition from the 80s to 90s were some of the actors were a little too beautiful when you got mm -hmm. into the 90s especially yeah. thinking about like beverly hills 90210 those kinds of teenagers the uh where this movie i think they all look like believable teenagers lucas is a little bit older than them but they all look realistically their age and so i think it's something that like they did well with matthew broderick as ferris bueller like he he looks like that troublemaker lucas looks like the 90s version of that now this is 1995 it was being filmed in 1994 mm -hmm. um 
and we'll talk about the design at some point, but um, he's pseudo breaking this fourth wall uh, until we see um, he wakes up on his motorcycle and uh, AJ and Mark are there. And then that's when the tone of the movie shifts into what we would get for the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. So we think it's this movie about Lucas. And actually what's interesting is very little of the rest of the movie is about Lucas. We're watching him. It's this thing that I think is a really interesting. You can tell the filmmaker is exploring a new, f a, changing that kind of archetypal storytelling of the coming of age aspects because they're all there and all the archetypes are there. But I think him trying to explore this shift between Lucas and the rest of the movie, it seems like uh, he's trying to change a little bit of how he's approaching storytelling and how they're yeah. approaching storytelling because where Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller are a little squeaky clean, it's like a lot of the 80s movies, the John Hughes, they're squeaky clean. There isn't much bodiness to them. They're, they're not rough on the edges where I think that is, this is all rough around the edges. Every aspect of this movie is rough around the edges. Yeah, and the other thing I really like about the way that it starts is it sets the tone that this is a slightly heightened reality. Yes. Um, which I think is really important. It's it's just that hair of a heightened reality mm -hmm. that lets you buy into some of the wackiness that then happens. Yeah, because I also think if anybody's worked retail in a store, this movie is just like, yeah, all of this is this is exactly right. Except uh, this, this is how I wish working retail in a store was because I don't know. I, I mean, again, this is like way before my time, but all of my experience with day jobs is it's not necessarily really like a family mm -hmm. in some of those instances and it's more like absolute terror about your job as opposed to we're all a family and we're all in this together kind mm -hmm. of a thing Absolutely. and i i don't know i think and again i feel like i'm not speaking totally from experience because i was a little baby you know when this was out but what um i don't know if nostalgic's the right word because i have a very small memory of, of this time but what struck me about it is, you know, this is a time before, really before the internet, before cell phones, mm -hmm. you know, nowadays, all of those characters would just be on their phones constantly. They're mm -hmm. actually interacting with each other. They're really interacting with the music and um, things are a little lower stakes in terms mm -hmm. of like, you know, we're not in an economy that's, that's dying. They're mm -hmm. not all in horrible debt from school or about to go into it. And right. so there's, a little as gritty as it is there is a little bit of innocence compared to things today that i think there's a definite nostalgia factor with that and i think that if this i don't know if this movie i don't know if the story could be told in the same way if it were set in modern day because I, of that well also because kids today we go what's a record store like what, <laughs> you know they they record stores are small we don't have we don't even have the chain record stores anymore yeah. like that's not a thing that happened like i just think of like you know because music town makes me think of you know the chain version of tower records the virgin right. mega store yeah. those kinds of things or even when like best buy was huge of media you went there to mm -hmm. consume media and buy media um and it's about it's, it, there's a lack of community now. I mean, now the way mm -hmm. you listen to music is you go on iTunes and you download the album and you listen to it, you know, on your phone or by yourself. Yep. And it's not, 
a communal let's go and listen to music and have this inform our experience and talk about it kind of a thing well and like i was thinking in that moment of where our standard stoner guy i always forget his name but he's the the, the like stoner employee that makes mark the weed brownies yeah he yeah. brings mark a, a tape I, like i yeah. i wish when people be like oh i have all this new music that i think you'd love i burned you a cd i made yeah. you a mixtape i those are things that again you can send someone a playlist but it's oddly right. like not you know back in my day um you know it just doesn't uh seem the same and i love that you bring up the music because for me the music the soundtrack is a character in this mm -hmm. because yeah. it is so expertly i think it's really expertly crafted it's expertly done for its era and its time and it's one of they use so many songs in this that like yeah. they're not even featured on the like record release of the the yeah. soundtrack though i will say this is the high key longest day ever working in a retail store yeah you know, i get that they open but at 10 rex and they close manning at midnight day, so. but it's rex manning day yeah. um and so <laughs> i yeah i think something that kind of as we jump into these characters i think i had i had the thought of every one of these characters is really just 90s archetypes it's exactly mm -hmm. like the breakfast club which leaned into each of them representing an archetype they even sign their names as the archetypes at the end of their movie but i did appreciate that they sort of broadened the archetype they like added more archetypes in there so my so my question for you is it's not a surprise to me that this leans into the 90s archetypes and including the ones that were added as we got into the 90s where we started addressing sexuality within women and in young mm -hmm. people and mental illness and those kinds of things um do you think each of these characters got to grow beyond their archetype in this movie um that's a really interesting question i do i think I guess what I'll, what I'd say is here's the difference for me in the breakfast club you're introduced to each of the characters very much within their archetype and then mm -hmm. the movie is about realizing that they're more than that I feel like they're already presented a little more three-dimensional and fleshed out when they're introduced in this movie to begin with and so I was viewing them less as these are archetypes and more like oh I can see how kids at school would archetype them mm -hmm. um so I to me they were always more three-dimensional but I mean I think that they address the central tenets of it you know like the the good girl who wants to be more of a bad girl like you know has you know gets called out on some stuff and she kind of comes to terms with her with herself and kind of accepts herself and the quote-unquote you know slut gets mm -hmm. called out for that although that's the one I wish Renee Zellweger's character did have a little bit more time to sort of yes. for us to learn a little bit more because her sort of arc seems to be like now i'm you know having my big band singing on the top mm -hmm. of the store moment and I, I don't quite know how that's a departure for her necessarily yeah to me it almost seems like slutty girls get to have dreams too like it, and it's one of those things <laughs> that like you can tell they're working through something because it's really interesting that you bring this up because i had the thought of there's an interesting dichotomy between our first two interactions that we see between the employees together the yeah. first is aj mark and a little bit of lucas but lucas drives off with the i don't regret the things i have done but right. the things i have yet to do um <laughs> piece of shit lucas um <laughs> But the boys get to be silly and wistful and dumb and just adorable with their fucking middle parts. But the girls, 
when Gina drives up to pick up Corey in the exact kind of vehicle that I would expect Gina's character to drive. Yeah. Um, it's, it's suddenly about Corey being the overachieving virgin and uh, who's going to like finally um, do her coming of age moment, having sex for the first time. And Gina's like slightly judgy, but loving and supporting. And right. I do think it's interesting and it's probably just a lot of the era or the time, but I think there's such a difference in how we're allowed to see the boys and the boys are still allowed to play in rough house and mm -hmm. the girls have to have these really high stakes conversations because all of their yeah. conversations are about Corey and her relationship with her dad, which is kind of very one dimensional. Yeah. So is it an eighties or nineties movie? If you don't have a, a parent who is forcing overachieving on you or in mm -hmm. Gina's case, completely, unattentive and absent yeah. parents. Um, I do think it's interesting. And I think that it's a lot to say about how the kind of director and the writers looked at the genders of these characters. Yeah. Just, but there is that aspect where boys are allowed to be silly for longer and like mm -hmm. be boys where the girls are expected to start learning very real and having very real things and having these kinds of conversations, I guess, yeah. early on, but with each other, and not with adults, which I, I did appreciate the complexity of Corey's character in that she is mm -hmm. the overachieving virgin, but that doesn't mean that she's not a sexual human being. Right. Um, and also, I liked that the three women in this film, even though they maybe didn't always like each other, they were still bonded and they still mm -hmm. had a friendship. You know, it, it, I got to feel it's that, sort of that thing of like, no one's allowed to beat up my brother but me, you know, kind right. of like that's sort of how I. Right. And and then oh my gosh, what's the other character's name? Who's played by the girl who who was the lead in the craft? The Sandra. Other Sandra. Sandra. Mm -hmm. um, I love her. I, do I too. really love her. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I when we were first when I first watched this, I remember you said like oh my gosh, if this were a musical, you'd be great in the Liv Tyler part. And I I think that if you know if I were casting director, that's the one I that's mm -hmm. where I'd slot myself. Yes. But I related a lot to some elements of Sandra, and yep. I think she's great, and I love. I love that she's not just weird. She's very smart. She's clearly dealing with something. There's people who want to help her, but I love their interactions with it where people are coming to help and she's like, great, tell, mm -hmm. like, give me a reason to not feel this way. Mm -hmm. And they're like, um, I can't like. Yeah. Well, so. and, and like her, we'll really get into Sandra because I think she has one of my favorite arcs. And I too yeah. really like Sandra because she's also an archetype that would have been the mean girl or she would have been the villain character in an 80s movie yeah. necessarily um she would have been you know she's the female jd from heathers in very many ways yeah. um but in a very realistic way i think there is an honesty and a sincerity in how sandra uh is approached in this movie mm -hmm. and i have the comment where is it um that uh she is so kind to everyone in her yeah. own way that mm -hmm. I really, I really appreciate her, the way that she interacts with the rest of her coworkers. Mm -hmm. um, and that it, it's, it's so, she's very kind in her own way, which I think is why I wanna, I want us to talk about later the funeral scene, yeah. the fake funeral, the fake funeral scene. Yeah. Um, 
because I think it's an important moment for Sandra and I think important moment for a lot of people who have struggled with depression, mental illness, mm -hmm. feeling less than, um, and there's really nothing. I love the monologue that she uses in that. And I wish more women used that mm -hmm. in auditions and things. Cause I actually think it's, it's what dear Evan Henson thinks it is, but it's not mm -hmm. like, it's what a lot of commentary about mental illnesses. Like I think it approaches things in a better way than like 13 reasons why somehow has done in three seasons. Um, wow. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's that thing that she actually is such a dynamic and interesting character. And one of those moments that I think is beautiful with her is her in the, the listening booth when mm -hmm. Joe kind of knocks in Joe's trying to be like, not a dad, but not a friend, but also like show yeah. that she means more than just like, like, it's so interesting. Joe is such a great character because he yeah. loves these kids in such a paternal way mm -hmm. that he literally pays them to just fuck off the whole yeah. time. But that's like what we expect from this kind of record store. Yeah. Um, well, and also what you say about kindness is that all the characters through all their flaws are all ultimately kind. Mm -hmm. And I think they're all ultimately good people. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the way that they treat Warren at the end is extraordinary. And that whole thing about like, I, I, I can't leave the couch, but he like takes a, a cushion. Yes. With him. So it's like, mm -hmm. he's still being weird. He's still like disobeying the rules, but he's still also like honoring them in a way. And yep. I just, it's, it's a world devoid of the negative sides of cancel culture. And mm -hmm. that's something that I really loved. And I, as much as they have issues or whatnot i love the camaraderie and the family quality and i mean i think that's what the movie was about i wish that it had been established a little bit earlier but that mm -hmm. idea of our family and our home is being threatened and we need to protect that um is the, really well done i think the idea of the lovable misfits that are all a family is is really yeah. comes into key because we also have two casts in this movie we have those kind of secondary empire records employees and the kind of stoner guy and then the guy from the who looks like he's from the cure who's sandra's boyfriend love interest mm -hmm. um which he's very quiet and they do a lot to actually make him one of the like not toxic men in this which i think yeah. is really great yeah um especially when she's just like don't touch me right now and i, th I think it's there's yeah. a lot of this that still feels very real to this day which i think is really great and you still have aj in kind of the dichotomy of the he is that 90s dreamer he mm -hmm. is supposed to be the love interest in this but like i i will preface this now with all of the men in this movie ruined me for men forever they've oh, kind of yeah. defined they've defined all of my types that i'm just like oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's that thing of it's like, uh, describe what people you're into. And it's like the meme of Will Smith pointing to the cast of the mummy. mummy <laughs> like this is me with the male cast of Empire Records. Yeah. Um, but it, it, something that I think is really interesting that I think it kind of explains AJ as he exists, because he really is the opposite of Lucas in many ways. Like Lucas is kind yeah. of toxic in his behavior where AJ is trying not to be I mean, AJ, if there is anyone who is the typical Romeo, it's AJ. Like he is, right. he's just coded that way. Um, especially I did opposite love, of Mark. I did love his line about like, I'm going to art school in Boston. And it's like, 
when in the last hour did you apply and get accepted to art school in Boston? <laughs> I mean, unless that's a thing that he'd already done, but there are those some of those moments that for me unravel this movie as not a right. good movie or not an effective movie. But right. I think one I love that it's just when he's like, I don't feel I need to, uh, I don't feel I need to explain my art to you. And I was just like, <laughs> we all know that boy. We all know that piece yeah. of shit, trash art boy. Yeah. Um, that's just uh so you brought up the music and we're at the beginning of the film and i will say that this i cannot get over and now people i think misuse the word iconic but for me as far as iconic movie moments go mm -hmm. it's the opening up scene so like musical theater we have a ton of the opening ups like we have the overture scene and it's like when we talked about it, i would i would choose sorry you open, said that and all i heard was opening up, up <laughs> letting the day <laughs> <laughs> oh god a waitress may be coming back to broadway for a limited yep. run this fall yep. um uh that's a different conversation um but my my thing is that the and we i always said it that i would open the musical with them on the stairs with the m m's uh mm -hmm. picking on who gets to pick the music and that would launch from the opening number i would still hold to that to this day i love that moment because it's so quintessential it tells us so much about each of them, who they are. Uh, we haven't met Sandra yet, but it's, it is yeah. kind of adorable. Um, and I just think it's so much yeah. fun. Um, I also would love to open the movie with just like a spot on Lucas and he's holding a piece of paper in his hand that we don't know what it is, but later we find out it's the like, you know, buyout agreement, yeah. just singing some uh, e emo original song about like the world is going to end mm -hmm. today. <laughs> kind of a thing and then like everything else happens but i love them picking out the music i also love the meta moments of music use within the world of mm -hmm. the film like when um you hear over the speaker gina just saying this one goes out to our employee of the month and it's <laughs> i the want the best money. things are life are free, free. <laughs> but you can keep you can them, for, them the for the birds and bees like it's genius it's such like the music producer the music director of this film now i don't know if it was a situation like zach braff when he did garden state where he mm -hmm. handpicked every song in this um i just the music one there are so many songs in this mm -hmm. um you know because the soundtrack only features six 16 mm -hmm. songs but there are 35 songs in the movies yeah. in the movie altogether, which is just so great uh, so i also love the original song that is like rex <gasps> big hit. oh yes oh and when God. the woman in line like just the casting of everyone in this movie like the so the good. featured extra so the older good. woman that comes out and just decides that she's going to sing the opera version of this song like uh -huh. in his face mm -hmm. is fantastic mm -hmm. and i i i think it's interesting that they chose not to put they they chose not to put uh mon amour say no more on yeah. the fucking why um uh, you know because it, it was written for the film i think it's yeah. so fantastic I and just, that music video too it's uh, <laughs> well and it's so in tune with the ridiculousness that was greece 2 that yeah. maxwell caulfield also stars in um yeah. yeah and he like it's just and if you really so listen good. to the lyrics it's like it's passable as something that like somebody in the 90s would put mm -hmm. through but it's just this side of not good enough that it's yep. like <laughs> well and it's obviously like a callback to all those like 70s pop stars that were 
you know, teen heartthrobs, but mm-hmm. then become, you know, the Danny Bonnet, you know, it's, it's all of those, but it's, it's also interesting because that man has a giant theater resume, mm-hmm. like huge. Um, oh, I didn't know he was in La Caja Don Gonquit. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh. Uh, yes, he was. <laughs> Um, but he was in Into the Woods, I believe. Oh, please tell me he played the wolf. Yeah, I think he was the wolf prince. Um, someone's kind of correct me. I should know that. Um, but uh, uh, Watch, yeah, he was Jack. <laughs> he was not Jack. I know he, he was, was not Jack. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was Chad Kimball in the revival. Um, <laughs> Chad Kimball. <laughs> hey, Chad. Hey, Chad. Oh, speaking of, the, the cast room Come From Away is in the theater filming right mm-hmm. now, which I think is amazing. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, and speaking of Rex Manning, I have to say... Especially, I was a little nervous going back and rewatching this, like in a post Me Too era, mm-hmm. because for some reason, the thing that really, the, the, one of the things that I remembered most vividly in about the movie was um, Corey's character and her whole mm-hmm. arc with Rex. And but I didn't remember some of the specifics, so I was like, oh gosh, how is this going to feel in a post Me Too era? I actually really, and people will probably disagree with me, but I really appreciate the way that it's handled because at no point is anybody like going after the young jail baby pretty girl. Mm-hmm. At no point is anybody um, like forcing her into something. Like, mm-hmm. I think that this captures something really great about a time when teenage girls you know, are not necessarily the smartest that they're ever going to be. Absolutely. And she, she's excited and she has a crush and she's like giving him his lunch and she's flirting shamelessly with him. And it's, it's, you know, it's like, you know, strongly flirting with somebody for the very first time. Mm -hmm. And he's completely ignoring her until she like spells it out. And then he's like, he asks, you know, are you sure you do really want to do this? And she's like, absolutely. And then he's like, okay great and then just like starts unbuttoning his pants and it's he doesn't go near her he doesn't mm-hmm. touch her he's mm-hmm. just being kind of like a, I mean not like he should be doing that at all but he's just being like this passive jerk and it's the reality of the crassness of the situation mm-hmm. that freaks her out and sends her out of the room because it's yeah. this like horrible reality of wait I don't want this mm-hmm. and this is too mm-hmm. real and I don't know I think that that captures something really interesting that i haven't seen in film like i've never seen that situation dealt with in that way before yeah i that scene always really kind of moves me it makes me very sad um it there are times where it actually almost brings me to tears because it is that moment of never meet your yeah never meet your heroes never meet those those people that you love but i think they handle this movie with a lot of tact because i do think gina's a little bit older than corey yeah. um in the way that like corey's not in high school anymore and in, in uh not corey gina is not in high school anymore mm-hmm. um and so it's not i don't want to say it's not like rapey gross when rex and and gina hook up um and i think there's also a part of gina that is doing it so that Corey sees that he is so not the man that she needs to be with. Right. Um, but also, you know, she's someone who Corey really hurt her feelings. And in that moment, it's like, well, if you think this is all I am, that's exactly what I'm going to be. And, you know, I think women especially are shown that they, you know, it's the, the Virgin or the Madonna, uh, or, you know, 
the bitch whore. or the whore. Yeah, like those are the 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 option for women. And so Gina was like, fine, if the, you think this is all I'm going to be, this is all I'm going to be. And, and it's well, and really- Well, along with that, I love the costuming of those two characters mm-hmm. because they're basically wearing the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, not identical, obviously, but they're both wearing- mm-hmm those cute skirts, you know, in different mm-hmm. colors, slightly different styles with like a cute sweat. Like mm-hmm. there's, it, one is not dressed slutty and the other mm-hmm. is like all buttoned up. They're both wearing really cute, very similar outfits. They probably went to the mall and like got them together. And I like how there's not these like crazy strong delineations um, in terms of going, like there's archetypes, but there's not stereotypes, I yep. feel like. Yes, I agree. Um, and well, cause I enjoyed that even Sandra's in a crop top as well. All three women are in a crop top, which is pentacle nineties. It is pentacle nineties. It was, you know, and that's the thing is they did a really nice job of not sexual, even though Gina like sexualizes herself, they don't make her inherently sexual just because she's wearing a shorter skirt with a crop top. Um, though I do, I oh, do God, love that. I love that moment where she comes out and goes, I think music town is yes. a little too risque. She's just in the, yes. the apron. And I was like, go off diva, go off. I love that. Well, there's <laughs> something else that I feel like they can, I I could be wrong and I'm sure people will disagree with me and that's great, mm-hmm. but there was something, and I'm sure that there is, there are definitely elements of the male gaze in this film, but something mm-hmm. that I don't know, I kind of connected with, and I think um, women will is there's, there's a period of time when you are going from a girl to a woman where, you know, you've always run around in shorts and you've run around mm-hmm. in tank tops and you run around in skirts and stuff like that. And there's nothing sexual about it. Mm-hmm. And the outside world starts viewing it as sexual before you have any awareness of it. Mm-hmm. And these girls are obviously older. I'm not saying that they're like children or any, I mean, not in terms of being under 18 mm-hmm. or whatnot. They're not, you know, they're not like 12 years old or anything, but some of the time in the scenes where they're like dancing the music or they're running around the energy that I felt from them was that sort of like girl in your room, just like having a good time. Mm -hmm. And you're like, totally not thinking about, you know, what your skirt's doing or doing something Mm -hmm. for the gaze of somebody else. Mm -hmm. Like you're just having fun and you're in your body. And I got that vibe from it as opposed Mm -hmm. to like, Ooh, we're going to, you know, gyrate Mm -hmm. around in short skirts because we know people think it's hot and sexy. And it is sexy, but in a very innocent, we're having fun for ourselves. This literally has nothing to do with anybody else. Uh-huh. And I, I haven't seen that kind of energy from a movie really either. I agree with that. Also, because we would get to the early 2000s where it became the opposite of that because we suddenly had the low rise skirts that were also mini skirts and the mm-hmm. tiny little tube tops. And it felt like every moment was meant to sexualize women. Like I just uh, yeah. reference, um, it just, I don't know what's the first one that comes to mind is white chicks, um, which is a very tonally different, but it's like the women at all points are made to like drip sexuality, even in, yeah. in a, uncomfortable way but i agree with you that i think this movie does not take the male gaze if anything it like makes fun of the male gaze from the the perspective of rex manning oh absolutely Um, and now you know there are a couple things with that that like there's the one obviously gay guy in line uh to get but like if anyone's ever been at a celebrity signing We've seen you. We know who you are. That that guy is always there. I've been that guy sometimes. It just happens. Um, But I think they tried to do... I think it's interesting because I think we see 
the characters through each other's eyes in the way that like yeah. AJ doesn't sexualize Corey. He yeah. literally worships her. Like he's drawing her. Like it, they really are this kind of weird fucked up Romeo and Juliet. Not less. It's actually way less fucked up Romeo and Juliet. Um, that we see those moments that like we see he sees her freak out and somehow that makes him love her more yeah. and not in a way that's like violent or evil or damaging but in a way that's actually really pure well, in, like, in how he about, loves her i know i know i i really enjoy lindsay ellis's video essays and i know there's been some controversy with her lately mm -hmm. or whatnot but she does a really great episode on the male gaze is viewed through mm -hmm. transformers and the way mm -hmm. that we actually see things yeah. and i i was just thinking about like when i picture meg i think i think both megan fox in transformers and Liv tyler in empire records are beautiful women who mm -hmm. are certainly objects of desire when i think about megan fox in transformers visually i remember the leaning over the car, mm -hmm. the sort of greased up short skirt, the like the cleavage and all that. Mm -hmm. When I think about Liv Tyler in, in Empire Records, even though she's wearing not completely dissimilar clothing, I think about her beautiful face mm -hmm. and like her eyes and you know what and stuff. And it's just, it's a very different way of looking at a person. Like I remember Liv Tyler's beauty mm -hmm. and all that and megan fox it's like a hot object mm -hmm. of male desire well and they focus on some of her i hate using the word quirky when we refer to certain women mm -hmm. um but like they focus on her isms so like she does this thing a lot where yeah. she has uh, her sleeves over her hands and plays yeah. with her fingers a lot which is an adhd thing it's a gifted kid thing it is uh it's a thing that uh, all my burnt out gifted kids you you were one of those two you know we're all that <laughs> thing where we always me mess <laughs> where we all mess with those things but she needs those moments of comfort for herself and where mm -hmm. she's still i don't want to say a little girl in certain ways but like so much of her life has been taken by her parents demanding excellence out of her that mm -hmm. she still she like sees Rex Manning in the way that she saw him when she was a small child yeah. um, on the TV, which I think is a really interesting commentary on Corey yeah. uh, as a character, but then also just the like lived experience from like Gina is like, yeah, your dad's awful, but like, wouldn't it be worse if like, you know, your dad just didn't care. And the, she never says that and they never make her the girl from the broken home, right. but like, we get that from her in just the way like i think this is one of renee zellweger's best film performances yeah, because she's absolutely. really i think as she's gotten older she's like angelina jolie where with the right director they pull gorgeous things out of her and i think this is one of those before she had she wasn't very famous she was not she hadn't done too much film but so she was still kind of using the craft and kind of sculpting who this girl was and and you could see that she these they had taken the time I don't know what the rehearsal process was. I don't know what it was like before. They lived in these characters because you could tell all of these characters were tweaked a little bit to be yeah. each of them just a little bit, which I think is one of the strengths of yeah. this movie. And I was really sad. I went back and read some reviews, including Roger Ebert's review of this mm -hmm. movie. And there's some of the cast, including Renee Zellweger, that he does not mention at all, mm -hmm. um, which I found interesting. But also going back to the male gaze, I really appreciated the way that they directed the Rex Manning music video. Yes! Because the, the women in it are so, it's like, they're so framed with the traditional, like, you know, misogynistic kind of male gaze but it's just this side of center so that mm -hmm. it goes into parody i mean mm -hmm. i'm not i'm a straight woman so like i don't know but i can't really imagine somebody like 
really being attracted to the women in that music video because even though they're scantily clad even though they're like writhing all over the bed it's like it's so ridiculous that it's like this isn't sexy and you know it's like the worst choreography on the face of the planet like oh, it's yeah. one of those things yeah. like rex isn't a dancer which they kind of <laughs> lean into and it's one of those things i think it's all supposed to be the absurdness of who oh, he yeah. is yeah um you know and it's uh, it's just, I think there this movie is so smart in so many ways that I want to give you know I just want to give it so much and it is a shame this movie did absolute terror like absolutely terrible 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 um I don't think they put a lot of money into it and it only did 300,000 and wow. has a 31 percent on Rotten Tomatoes wow which I'm sorry, this movie to me is a much higher than that. Yeah. Uh, now Empire Magazine did give it like a three and a half out of five, um, which I think it's really good. But I think it's one of those now that we look back because we are in a period where the kids today are reliving their 90s truths, <laughs> their 90s fantasies. And as those of us that were here, we're like, you guys are lucky. You look way better than any of us did in the 90s. Like bucket hats were not fun. Jokers, <laughs> you know, everybody, it's like everybody looks back at their pictures now. And I go, y'all look so fly. We looked like garbage. <laughs> but, but I think it's interesting because I could, I mean, again, I was too young to like really know, but I could imagine how seeing this in the middle of the 90s, it could maybe come across as sort of like another high school movie or something, yeah. but I think it's aged really well. I think that this is one of the like pieces from the nineties. Mm -hmm. That's a really great time capsule. Um, and yeah, I think it's, I think it's aged really, really well. I agree. I think it's aged well in the same way that like sister act two is aged really well. Yes. Um, Love honestly, it's an example where the sequel is just as good, if not better than the original, yeah. uh, give me sister okay. act two on Broadway starring Patina Miller. Yes. Cowards, yes. cowards, cowards, cowards. Oh <laughs> uh, uh, with friend of the pod, uh, Bryn Williams as the Lauren Hill role. I want it. I need it. Oh, Bryn, I, I love Bryn. <laughs> Bryn is Bryn. fantastic. <laughs> get like um, Cynthia Revo in there somewhere, because I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, Shirley Routh as Mother Superior. Let's do it. Give it to me. Give it. Give me everything. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think this movie does so much well yeah and I, I can't take that away from it something particularly from a filmmaking standpoint they do these raw jump cuts from moments of pure chaos to absolute stillness and silence yeah and then back to chaos and yeah. it's so interesting and i actually really like how they did it but mm -hmm. something i think we're going to transition is there anything else that you just think that you think stands out as a really effective way of storytelling effective movie making something that's really effective well, in this movie this is a slightly different thing but it's something i did want to mention is when the whole warren subplot which is hilarious mm -hmm. but when he comes back sorry spoilers um but i think it's worth mentioning um he comes <laughs> this movie's to, almost 30 years old actually it's fine right. <laughs> he comes he comes back at the end of the movie with a gun mm -hmm. and i mean it's he's again fortunately inept and they're they're blanks and it's meant mm -hmm. to be done a certain way but um, I realized that this movie came out before mass school mm -hmm. shootings mm -hmm. was a thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just, I just found that really interesting because I, I wonder how people watching it in the nineties reacted to that mm -hmm. moment versus how, like maybe I reacted to that moment now, because I see some 
crazy kid with a gun walk in and I'm like, okay, great. We're going to like a shooting, a, a serious shooting place right now. And it felt a little like, wow, are they, are they really taking him out of the realm of mm -hmm. disturbed, but quirky and funny kid who doesn't really mean any harm to someone who's like really deranged. Yeah. Um, but they weren't, but that's the one part of the movie that I think aged a little differently than maybe somebody would have anticipated. I agree. Cause I think we have to look at it in the context. I also think that any other TV show or movie at the time would have made that a black or Latinx actor mm -hmm. to have like the commentary. And yeah. I think having it be a privileged white kid who breaks down and steals just to feel something. Yeah. Um, and then I think it's also to give kind of Sandra that moment of like, you can't oh, hurt yeah. me more than I already hurt myself. And that's really, it's one of the, very real moments that pulls us out of the kind of hyperbole of everything else. Mm -hmm. um, but I agree with you. It's that moment where every time I watch it, I go, oh, oh, mm. yeah. like if they tried to remake this today, which I agree with you, this is a movie I don't think we could remake in the same way because I don't think these kids would be friends. I don't think even I think you'd have before. to keep it set in the 90s. Yes. Um, and yeah. I, that's one of those that one I think we need to stop remaking things too. I think this is a really nice period piece one because the costumes are great. They feel very real. Mm -hmm. The set is great. Um, it does make me sad and miss the idea of a giant record store that you could go spend hours in. Yeah. Um, you know, because they were selling records and tapes and CD because they were that moment where all three still existed as a, a thing where they were all being made on. And so I think that is, I agree with you. I, I, when we're looking at things that didn't quite age well or things that don't quite stack up, I think there's that moment that we have to watch that. And it is different. And like a young person who watches that today is probably going to have a very different context for that than someone who, um, yeah was from that time you know just because that was that was three years before columbine and in right. those kinds of things that i think and that was even though like school shootings mass shootings you know riots and those kinds of things happened before columbine was the first thing that kind of put that on the map and i think those were the moments that we changed the way we told stories because that was about the time we then started getting the this is your brain this is your brain on drug ads that we yeah, yeah. they started getting aggressively gritty where i think this is like adorably roughed edge yeah um, in the same way that it's supposed to be lovable and the last thing i will say uh, as we're talking about things that are effective storytelling i love the beautiful simplicity of well if 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 Deborah wants to, I keep calling her Sandra. I'm sorry, everybody. It's Deborah. Oh, it's not okay. Sandra. It's Deborah. I, well, hey, I've been I've been enabling it's you okay. with that. So. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's that moment of they're like, well, if she wants to, if she wants to die, let's give her a funeral. Yeah. And which made me think of the Good Place, the whole yes. funeral section mm -hmm. of the Good Place, which was done with a different vibe, obviously. But and so I think it's really interesting to kind of break down to that moment of like. I, they weren't trying to purposely trigger anyone. I think it's someone like myself who has dealt with uh, suicidal tendencies before. Um, um, this might be a little bit for some people. If if this is something you're worried about being triggering, you might want to just jump ahead a couple minutes, um, not yeah. to you know say anything purposely. But th this is just a very this is the moment where I don't think they would have talked about this in a movie 10 years prior. And I think this is something that was very important to the nineties because we were starting to deal with the issue of suicide and we were st just starting to discuss mental illness, mm -hmm. um, as something that affects everyone. Um, and whether you actually have a condition or that someone in your life has a condition, um, that this idea when Sandra's like, 
she, you know, she pulls the thing off and she's like, I tried to do it with a lady bick. And she, you can just see in that moment that she's almost more upset that she couldn't follow through it on her own and that yeah. she's like forced to be tied to this earth. But we see those moments where like, she's grateful that she didn't, um, which I know is something that happens a lot when people discuss uh, people who had unsuccessful suicide attempts. Um, that the moment you know, that got me in that was when she says this funeral sucks yeah <laughs> like, I, I, like i do i do think something that's that's powerful in that moment is like on the flip side whereas there has been criticism of 13 reasons why that it in some yes. way glorifies suicide yes. and that like you know you kind of stay in power and keep living on after there just in that one line in empire records it to me emphasizes that idea of you know what if if you did die that things after your death would not necessarily be the way that you had fantasized right. them or wanted them to be or right. not. so well and it also it's that moment where you can see you know a lot of characters because it's not just sandra that's more uh deborah that's most affected by that in that it's all of them aj i love the actor who plays aj because he has those giant puppy dog eyes that you just see all the emotions like you see him feel all the emotions at once um like it's one of those things that i think it's because he's a young actor he really effectively tells a lot of stories through his face because he's not maybe necessarily burdened down by technique always you know a lot of times we those those people who have studied and worked and trained sometimes the training gets in the way yeah. and i think it's those moments but it's kind of watching everybody realize that like oh how would they feel if if sandra didn't show up for, I'm sorry, everyone, Deborah didn't Deborah. show up for work um, and what that would mean for them. And I think, I think that scene was handled in a really tactfully and beautiful way. Again, it's a scene that I think they would probably not do or they would camp up in a contemporary film. Um, I just well, think it, for some reason, I keep thinking that if they remade this movie today, it would feel like Glee. It would feel like a Kenny Ortega property and not something that actually... I actually feel good about watching at the end. Right. And the thing about the funeral scene is I think it's really important to keep in mind that it's not like a one size fits all way of working with somebody mm -hmm. who is depressed or is suicidal or mm -hmm. whatnot. And for Deborah, that was a really effective thing to do. That mm -hmm. would not necessarily be the thing to do for everybody. So I, I think that if you sort of look at it as a case by case basis and for her in that situation, it was effective because of X, Y, and Z and just take mm -hmm. it as an isolated thing. Yep. I think that can be a helpful way to look at it too. I agree. Uh, welcome back for anybody that had to jump ahead. Thank you for sticking with us. I appreciate and love you all. Um, I love you more though. <laughs> I, so, I know you're on your favorite. <laughs> absolutely. So I think there are, while I really enjoy this, I feel now watching it as like, I keep saying a fully fledged adult, but like, I'll never actually feel like a fully formed adult. Right. I feel like this is movie is messy and real in a lot of ways, because I feel like they didn't necessarily know how they wanted the story to flow. Yeah. And a lot of the scenes, well, they feel very much in a Kevin Smith movie in ways that you can pull out certain scenes and just rearrange them in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I think they filmed some scenes and then dropped them in to see where they worked. And that's why a lot of the like transitions in and out feel a little flat. They feel a little rushed, but I also feel like we're covering every minute of the day. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I feel like those were those things that I sometimes pulled me out because I didn't always understand why we were going to the next 
story beat, yeah. or I feel like they didn't quite know what the next story beat was. And some of the, we told a lot of story in that day because they had a lot of people they had to get to. Um, I also think it, it would have benefited from having a little bit more of a structural spine I agree. in the sense of the, the, the main thing seems to be, you know, Lucas stole all this money. And I'm, I'm still confused as to whether they want us to be convinced that he did it for selfish reasons until like the big reveal at the end mm -hmm. or, cause I mean, I kind of figured it out immediately when they showed that mm -hmm. document. Um, so I was a little unsure about what, the heart of the the structural spine mm -hmm. was and they lose lucas for like a good chunk of the middle of the film they do um and so i just i wish it had been a little the theme had been a little more specific early on of like i don't want to lose family i don't think we needed necessarily for it to be a twist at the end because i think we mm -hmm. could kind of figure it out pretty quickly but to just sort of track that about you know where in the day are we at what point would police need to be called if they were going to be called at what point is he going to share why he did what he did is he going to come up with any other options you know i, I don't i don't know it just i felt like it could have not a ton but it could just could have latched on to that a little bit more mm -hmm. to help it throughout i i agree and it's also one of those things where like they keep coming back to him as that pivot point but he's not always the one also because he doesn't tell everyone else about yeah um music what is it? uh music uh, ba -da -ba -da. music land music town? music town yes music town they don't he doesn't tell them about it and to me that seem and it, it's because i think they wanted to give joe that like freak out moment right um because i do think it's an interesting way of being like oh well we know from the beginning that lucas is doing this right from a way that like it's obvious to us in the beginning that he's making a rash decision because he's deciding that he doesn't want his um his home to go away because yeah. you see joe is like a dad to him and i do love though that moment that joe beats the shit out of him i think he deserves it because that <laughs> was not the way to go about it um I do think that they should have, I, I, I think that it could have helped the stakes more in yeah. one of two ways. Either it could have been a great moment for Lucas to have sort of the breaking the fourth wall moment and say something kind of to us about, you know, let them have one more day mm -hmm. of the way that it always was. And so then we're back here thinking like, oh my gosh, this is like the last day that they're going to have like this or have him tell everyone early on. So it ups the stakes with everything. Yeah. So like, you know, um, Corey especially has to have a great time with Rex Manning because like this is the last mm -hmm. day of the store. Rex is never coming back. No mm -hmm. celebrities ever coming back. You know, mm -hmm. I just I just think that there would be a way to help it raise the stakes because right now we know there's high stakes and Lucas mm -hmm. knows there's high stakes, but and Joe does, but kind of nobody else does. So the stakes right. of the day or whatever their individual ones are, which are great, but I just think it could have helped the overall. When I think the there's film. only one scene where I would say that I think it was effective in the way they did it. And it's the very first scene between Lucas and Joe, oh, yeah. um, not yeah. Lucas and Joe, uh, Joe, Joe and AJ, when AJ's yes. like, I think I'm going to tell Corey today. And that's, yeah, yeah. AJ, that's AJ's thing. And Joe's literally his life is just, draining yeah, out of his yeah. ears um but i think it's one of those only moments because also you would then like maybe they didn't tell mark because they knew mark was kind of blab like yeah. because when aj's like oh i need to tell you guys what's up to Corey and and gina and it's like yeah. but you don't actually know what's up you just know that you just know that he took the money but right. like i feel like aj should or i think one of them should also have the burden of knowing the truth yeah 
Well, and, and also there's no other explanation given. And I kept wondering, like, besides the fact that Lucas is just kind of like a, you know, free spirit kind mm -hmm. of person, why do they think he took this money? Because right. everything else he does in this film, he's a little reckless, um, mm -hmm. but he's at heart a good person. And I just feel like I would not believe, after knowing him for a while, I wouldn't believe he just took that money to Atlantic mm -hmm. City for his own benefit. So. No what do they all what why do they all think that he did this right well and they they try to make it funny by having the diff by having the shtick of every time and one of the employees comes in they hear a more ridiculous version of the story right. but they're all things that were like they're not particularly ridiculous but they are but at the same time it's like well i believe that probably that's funny but yeah. like if they knew lucas but i think it'd be and more interesting to me if like AJ knew and AJ's the only one that knew and he's trying to keep it and make sure everyone has a good day. Yeah. yeah. And then that's also what makes like Corey get mad at him and yeah. all these things that I think it would be a much more interesting like beat wise. So yeah. then that Mark is the last person that finds out and Mark's like, we actually see Ethan Ember getting to do some like really interesting, like Mark pulls away and is like, no, fuck you guys, fuck you guys. I'm as equal of a member of this family as you yeah. all are. And it I think it would have been a nice thing yeah. for him. It would have just been a nice little link. I mean, even in the breakfast club, because I mean, the thing that this shares is sort of a film that's very episodic in nature and like a day in the life or whatnot. But even the breakfast club has the link of like, we have to write an essay by yeah. the end of this day or we're not getting out of here. So right. it's, it's a it's a thing, um, which I just I just think a little bit more of that would have been helpful. Yeah, it's it's I'm still not sure at the end. Like we know why they're telling the story, but it's one of those. It's like when we get to the oh yeah, it's we we saved Empire. It was super easy because we knew there was going to be a really awesome montage festival kind of moment where they save Empire because we know that's what has to happen. Well, the um, thing that was bittersweet to me though about that, which I wish that they had addressed, is the fact that all of with the exception of Joe, all of these characters are at a point in their life where they're not going to be here forever. I mean, mm -hmm. already Corey's going off to college, AJ's going off to art school and stuff. So there's something bittersweet about like, yay, we saved Empire. Like, cool. So that means like we have an extra mm -hmm. two months that we get mm -hmm. to come to work before it ends. Because the, the thing that I think would be nice to be hanging over this whole thing is this is going to end. Mm -hmm. one way or another, mm -hmm. whether because of the takeover, whether because of the loss of money or whether just because we're gonna move on from this, mm -hmm. it is going to end. And I sort of wish that that had been hanging over them a little bit too. Yeah, of, I agree. Great, we saved, we saved it for today in this fantastical thing, but we saved it for today. Um, and, and also that's the other bittersweet thing knowing what we know now is that those stores don't even exist anymore. Mm -hmm. like empire records is is come 2020 like probably will not exist anymore mm -mm. Mm -mm. um so i just i don't know i kept thinking about like well joe gets you know maybe 30 more years and by the time mm -hmm. he's like i don't know what 50 or something like he's gonna have no job mm -hmm. and i don't know that's with hindsight they clearly didn't know that at the time right but it was something that affected my viewing of the last scene. Or I feel like maybe in the late 2000s, 
Um, Joe's like, you know what? I'm ready to move on. Uh, media is shifting differently through the, you know, the heavy influence of like digital art that like he sells empire to Lucas. Like he makes Lucas a yeah. full partner and Lucas runs it. And then Lucas is like, oh wait, I'm going to lose empire. Yeah. That'd be the only way I could see this movie continuing, but I don't, this is that another would be story. An interesting where... sequel though, is it, if would. it was nowadays and Lucas had taken over and realized shit, like there's no way to sustain this. Like, yeah. what am I going to do now? Yeah. And has all these, um, Gen Zers who are now like kind of they think it's then they think it's cool because it's retro and vintage and so but yeah. you know people come back but it's another story where I think from start to finish I love the story I want to keep revisiting it yeah. but I don't need more of this story because I think yeah. I'm not kind of like what happens to any of the characters um because life works out that way and so I'm not really sure um uh you know I will say this movie gave me a very wrong impression of how you deal with shoplifters in a yeah. store. <laughs> yeah. So fun story. I worked for a certain um, tween teen girl accessory brand oh. who shall remain uh, nameless. Yes, uh, you did. That rhymes with heirs. Um, and bears we had heirs, heirs, accessories. Bears, accessories. Bears, bears, accessories. And, <laughs> and ice cream for the older girls. Um, and so, you know, I caught this girl who had been putting things in a bag from the Deb for all those people who talk about things that are now defunct, but the Deb, um, where everybody Wait, what used is, to- What is that? Deb, it's, oh, it, you guys might not have had them on the West Coast. Um, it's a store where, you know, they sold like hip, trendy girls clothes, but like from at homecoming and at prom, it's where you went for the affordable prom and homecoming dresses. Oh yeah, we did not And, have and that. then in June, they would all be $25. So you went and bought your prom dress for the next year. Um, everyone knows it's Deb went along with like chokers and butterfly clips in the hair. It's those sheath asymmetric empire waist, uh, like uh, taffeta, Organza mm -hmm. dresses there, <laughs> but, and so uh, she went running. And so I chased after her and I- Did you tackle her over? I almost, I almost tackled her. She was much smaller though, but we were able to grapple her and it did help. We did find out that she had stolen like $2,000 worth of stuff from the Deb and like $1,000 wow. of stuff from my store. But they were like, that's not how you deal with this. And I said, bullshit, I got all our shit back. <laughs> Fuck you guys. Um, I did not work for the company much longer. Um, shout out to the Spotsylvania Mall, which is now Spotsylvania Town Center. Um, but, um, but I do think people have really unfairly chalked this movie up because I think anybody that knows this movie is like, they go, oh, oh, I love that movie. Like, it's one of those that like, I think it really for a lot of people defined kind of generational for them because it was like this yeah. and um um oh god what's that movie that had every teen star in it uh somebody screaming it had like seth green peter fecinelli um ethan embry it was another one of those like this was when we were starting to get we were working towards the american pie ensemble films mm -hmm. and i think this is one of the ones that does it really well even though it it critically did not succeed. Then I think it's something that we look back now and we realize that they were doing some pretty fantastic things that, you know, Kevin Smith would get applauded for doing just a few years later. Um, but I think they, they did. And I think, 
you know, it's also hard comparing these to like the China, China McLean and Duff Cameron's of the world. These performers are all fantastic. Mm -hmm. Like Ethan Embry, who I am in love with to this day. Thank God for him as the gay cowboy in Sweet Home Alabama. But his mark on the weed brownies with the Guar album. Yeah. I just won. Fuck them for making that. That was so fantastic too. I just, he, he just does that kind of character so well. I think they all did really well, but was there anything else that just, you would have liked to see just a little bit different that, that didn't necessarily pay off for you upon rewatch on this time? Um, I don't think anything that I haven't mentioned. I mean, the only thing is, I think some of the music in this film is phenomenal, phenomenal. but on the whole, I don't think that the nineties were as a, world our strongest music decade mm -hmm. um so there were there was some music that i kept wishing that they'd like plugged in something like from the yeah. 80s or something instead um but no i think it's lovely and it's charming and i like that it's not like super slick like these mm -hmm. feel like real people mm -hmm. with flaws that aren't mm -hmm. older than they're supposed to be right um, in terms of the way the characters are behaving, not in terms of the age of the yep. actors cast in them. But, you know, thinking of the way that um, young people sort of become stars now and sort of the like conveyor belt mm -hmm. process and it's so slick and they have to be on all the time because, you know, we're living mm -hmm. in a social media world. And, you know, th these just, they sort of felt like real people with flaws and quirks that were allowed to be that. And it's not like a slicked up film. Yeah, I agree. Um, I do, I really do appreciate that like the 80s and 90s allowed there to be media for children and young adults and, mm -hmm. and teenagers that was gritty. I mean, I love fantasy films of the 80s mm -hmm. and I love how dark they are. Those movies would never be made today, mm -mm. like ever. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure what the movie that you would point to now of being the like the movie about you know, the teens of this generation in their day-to-day -day lives, that's kind of a, a heightened reality, but realistic-ish. I don't know. I don't know what that would be now. I don't, I, well, I mean, it's all things that they had some, they add camp to everything now. And as someone who highly adores camp, I am campy myself. You know, I, I look at things like Julie and the Phantoms, which is a, I reference Kenny Ortega, but there are things like that where we're referencing those ideas of kind of, um, you know, it's that, or we get Sabrina. That's the thing is like, right. this, like we, we don't have anything that's squarely in the middle. Like this feels very much like what Riverdale is riffing on. Like Riverdale yeah. tries to be darker then. Um, but I do think what's interesting though, I will posit your, your thoughts of the soundtrack. They gave voice to a lot of really unknown indie bands at the time and yeah, gave yeah. them their first billboard charts their first their first you know charted albums and they wanted to use a lot of the songs that the cast liked as mm -hmm. well as like felt what like their listener their viewers would listen right. to and yeah. so that was really interesting the fact that we did have um you know bands like ass pony and dirt clods which and reminds just... me of juno they did something similar with the music yes. of juno where it was just the music they liked mm -hmm. to listen to and it introduced mm -hmm. a lot of great new bands to the, the scene. i agree oh you know what i will say this movie does a lot of what i think 
made the Scott Pilgrim movie work. Yeah, like they yeah. build on they build on each other to be kind of like I think now everything is so dark and kind of everything is so broody that we don't want anything that is a tinge of reality. We want something to be a little heightened like yeah. the 80s were. So I think we'll be eventually be able to come back around to this idea where we are telling real stories because we are having people watch documentaries and we are making, you know, billions of people are watching docu-series uh, in a way that, you know, if you were the kid that watched documentaries 20 years ago, you got laughed at, you know, yeah. so it's one of those things that I think it's the perception of how we're consuming media. Um, well, and I also think it's some of the media that we're consuming and I, gosh, I'm trying to figure out how to make this comment and I'm not quite sure how to, but, mm -hmm. you know, we were talking about, you know, the, 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 the fact that this movie is, I mean, again, it's a movie and it's a heightened reality, but mm -hmm. it's still somewhat, you know, grounded, realistic people, you know, dealing with that time in their life and whatnot. And nowadays I feel like whenever I see something that involves people over the age of 10 kind of period, it's functioning kind of out of a culture where it's expected that everybody has been watching porn like since mm -hmm. they were born mm -hmm. that like every coming of every every like story about like you know your first time or whatnot could be like a softcore porn episode yep. or something and that that really bothers me it's one of the reasons I think that that scene is so is is so kind of, nice is the wrong word but i'm not sure what the mm -hmm. word is but when when she throws herself at rex manning and then like deals with the reality whereas nowadays i feel like that scene would play very differently for a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of reasons um and yeah i don't know i just i don't know if that's a, a cultural thing if it's a generational thing if it's a, just what's expected from movies nowadays thing but um yeah that's that's something that i i, I wish wasn't so much the case. I agree. Um, you know, I do think it's interesting that I, you know, we joked about this, me wanting to make it a musical from the beginning because it'd be in, so good. Well, in 2018, it was announced that uh, a team was going to be bringing this to Broadway in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, but because of uh, COVID-19, it didn't. And as of this month, uh, we have heard nothing more about it. So maybe don't work on it. And I'll have some time now that I'm not in school. I don't know, something else. But <laughs> um, <laughs> have the rights because we could yeah. we could do a really bang it's up true. job with this it's show. It's true. I agree. I agree. Can you get um, some diversity I, in the cast as well? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, just because I think, you know, the, the people, that was my one issue also is like, I get like where they probably are in this group of of, of kids but it is a very white film like I think literally everyone in this film except some of the Rex Manning women I think almost yeah. everyone is white so like yeah. that is my one thing I just say let's put some more diversity and yeah. obviously we would have queerness in in the story now that yeah. they just weren't ready for at that point which right. I do I mean, understand they hinted, they hinted at it they like strongly hinted yeah. at moments but it was yeah. like a moment that was kind of yeah played for yeah. laughs yeah i did i, oh, do, yeah, I yeah. did think that was hilarious though of like rex manning's actually playing very well in the numbers with young men between the yep. ages of like 13 and 25 and it's like have you compared that to the rates of homosexuality <laughs> in men between 18 and, 25? <laughs> and like, i was no, like we haven't why would we do that <laughs> I think I think now Lucas would be aggressively bisexual and uh, yeah. I think it'd be um but Ashley thank you for being on the show with me this is thank always so much me. fun so lay it out for us of where everyone can find you online and what you have coming up if you're allowed to talk about anything sure the main thing is go check out my website it's ashleygriffinofficial.com 
Um, you can find links to all my social media and everything there. I also um, host my own podcast on the Onstage Network. It's called Stage Directions. Uh, maybe I can get Maddie Ryan to come and be on it. Sometime. You know it. You know it. Um, and then it's just, you know, quarantine's been crazy. So I have I have projects coming out. Actually, there's a web series that's going to be coming out of one of my shows that I'll send you all the information for. I think you'll find it hilarious. Yeah. Um, and then just when things can reopen, my shows will be coming back. Um, I'm in negotiations for some things. Um, and yeah, so it's sort of in a, in a holding pattern, but I will definitely share when I can. Um, but it will all be up on my website. So come come stalk me. I love that. <laughs> my, I will say my last thought that I just thought of that I, I, I wrote down, well, can it be a nineties movie without a weird random dance party, but the Rex no. Manning dance party with all of the guests and like the empire, right? Like it is yes. so strange and so unusual, but like, for me, it's a reason to watch the entire film. <laughs> oh yeah. I also love when like the owner of the place, I also love his backstory that like his grandfather opened this well-respected, like what was it like a bidet shop or mm -hmm. something like that? And then his dad, who was a rocker, like turned it into yeah. a rock store. And, and he comes in and everyone's like dancing. He's like, what is going on in here? It's like, <laughs> what do you expect? Mitch is the man, Joe. We got to take out the man. I'm trying, Lucas. Hey there, Screen Beans. Have you heard about Screen Snark? Rachel, this is an ad break. They aren't screen beans until they listen to the show. Fine. Potential screen beans. You like movies and TV shows, right? I mean, who doesn't? Screen Snark is a casual conversation about the movies and television shows that are shaping us as we live our everyday lives. That's right, Matt. We have a chat with at least one incredible guest every episode, hailing from all walks. We've interviewed chefs, writers, costumers, musicians, yoga teachers, comedians, burlesque dancers, folks in the film and TV industry, and more. We'd be delighted for you to join us every other Monday on the Certain POV Podcast Network. Or wherever you get your podcasts, fresh and tasty off the presses. What? But that's, no, that's not. Can I call them Screen Beans now? Fine. Screen Beans. So tune in and we'll see you at the movies or on a couch somewhere. Because you're a whole Screen Beans now. You will be mine. Before I wrap up, I just wanted to give a huge shout out to Case, Pat, Matt Storm, MJ, Anna, Carl, Angela, Laura, Jared, and Daniel for helping me make our very special opener possible. Thanks again for tuning in for our newest episode of Saturday Morning Confidential. Ashley is always such a wonderful guest to have on the show. I again am deeply sorry for having to go on a hiatus, but Life happens sometimes, but I am back, and we have some fantastic shows coming up. Next, uh, in two weeks, I will be back with my good friend Rachel Bodner as we take a deep dive into the controversial classic, Twilight. Yes, that's right, friends. We're going to have a Twilight party right here at Saturday Morning Confidential. Y'all need to come back for the romper room fuckery, because I guarantee it's going to be a good time. As always, find us on all social media. Check us out at certainpov.com where we have some amazing new shows that have joined the network and I can't wait to have their hosts on this show. Now join us again next time for another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning 
Confidential. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.